Welcome to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast which outlines a life spent working with children and tells the stories of some amazing children and their families. I'm Chris. Please come and join me. Episode 8. Paying Attention to Detail. I'd like to return to the usual format this week. There was a baby I came across as a registrar in neurology who has stuck with me throughout my career. This is a story that may seem very sad initially, but I think that by the end you'll realise that this was a real triumph. Certainly it's a lesson I will never forget, and I think it will reassure you that attention to detail is key to effective clinical practice. The day started like any other. I saw some outpatients in my clinic, and then at lunchtime I got a call from the intensive care unit to see a baby who had been admitted there three days earlier. It was mid-December. The baby, Jamie, had been admitted to one of the medical wards with a diagnosis of bronchiolitis a few days earlier. Bronchiolitis is a disease which occurs in epidemics every winter. It's a viral respiratory infection which causes breathing difficulties, particularly in babies and young infants. Very occasionally, these become so severe that a baby is unable to breathe effectively for themselves and he or she needs the support of a ventilator. When Jamie came into hospital, he was breathless but seemed to be coping reasonably well. However, within an hour or two, his breathing deteriorated and he was urgently transferred from the medical ward to the intensive care unit. There he was placed on a ventilator and, as was usual, was given drugs to sedate him and to paralyse him so that he couldn't fight against the ventilator. He had a very difficult time initially and there were concerns about his oxygen levels and blood pressure, although these responded quickly to treatment. In fact, after this initial early phase, it didn't prove too difficult to ventilate him and there were no major problems in keeping his blood oxygen levels up in the normal range thereafter. Because of this, after about 24 hours, it was felt that the ventilation could begin to be weaned. The first step in doing this was to stop the drugs that caused his paralysis and to reduce the amount of sedation so that Jamie could start to breathe for himself. This was when the first inklings of a problem became apparent. It can take some time for the effects of the drugs that are administered in intensive care to wear off. When Jamie didn't start to move after the paralysing drug was stopped, there was initially no major concern. However, 24 hours later he was still not moving, and more importantly he was making no effort to breathe for himself. The medical team who was looking after him examined him carefully. They noticed that, in addition to him not moving or breathing, there was no movement of his face or his eyes. They became worried that Jamie may have sustained severe brain injury during his illness. At this point they asked for help from the neurology team and I went to see him. I went through the story. I noted that although his oxygen levels and blood pressure had dropped quite low immediately before he was put on the ventilator, there hadn't been any prolonged or sustained problem with either. I didn't consider that there was any evidence of an event that could have caused severe injury to his brain. Nevertheless, when I examined him, it was clear that he was neurologically profoundly abnormal. Jamie didn't move or breathe. He didn't even show any change in his heart rate when subjected to unpleasant stimuli, such as suction of his endotracheal tube. 
Very worrying, his pupils were no longer reacting to light. I arranged for some investigations to be done, including a brain scan. The brain scan didn't show any significant abnormality, but despite this, Jamie continued to show no evidence of any neurological function at all. I also arranged for Jamie to have a lumbar puncture. You may remember this from episode 4. This is a procedure in which a needle is placed into the spine, and the fluid from around the spine is examined chemically and under the microscope. This too didn't show any significant abnormality. All of Jamie's blood tests were similarly normal. We were left with no explanation for the condition in which we found him. One of the medical consultants raised concerns about Jamie's future. If he couldn't breathe for himself, the only way he could stay alive was on the ventilator. If his brain wasn't working to the extent that he couldn't even control basic functions, the question of whether continuation of mechanical ventilation was appropriate had to be considered. There was much discussion about withdrawal of care, and the situation was discussed in detail with Jamie's parents. It was determined that we should do a formal examination to ascertain whether there was any brainstem function, with a view to deciding whether we could determine if Jamie would be likely to recover. Along with one of the other doctors, therefore, I undertook a formal assessment of Jamie's brainstem reflexes. This involved detailed examination of all the functions undertaken by the back part of the brain, or brainstem. These include many of the functions that are essential for maintaining life, such as breathing. The outcome was bleak. Jamie showed no response to any of the tests that we undertook. These tests included assessment of functions such as pupil response to light, eye movement response to cold water being squirted into the ears, response to facial pain, gag response, ability to breathe, etc. At the end of this, the medical team raised the question as to whether ventilation should be discontinued. I was deeply troubled, because although there was no evidence of brainstem function, we had no explanation for why this might have occurred. It was not possible to make a diagnosis of brain death, as this requires there to be a reason for brain death to have occurred. I argued that it was inappropriate to consider withdrawing treatment in the absence of any clear reason for suggesting that Jamie could not recover. I went back and thoroughly examined him. I was struck by a finding that I had previously noticed, but which, perhaps, I hadn't considered as carefully as I should. I noticed that Jamie's reflexes were absent. Although in the acute phase of a severe brain injury, reflexes can transiently be depressed, it is usual for them to then recover and thereafter to become excessively brisk due to the damage to the brain. Although there would have been a number of possible explanations for the loss of tendon reflexes, one possible cause was that Jamie had a severe neuropathy. Neuropathy simply means abnormal nerve function. Although a neuropathy sufficiently severe to cause the complete paralysis of all limbs and of all the nerves affecting face, eyes, ears and throat is virtually unheard of in childhood, I decided to proceed to formal electrical testing of the nerves. In those days, this was an assessment which I did myself. I took the machine into the intensive care unit, and on testing the nerves, I found that there was a severe abnormality of nerve function affecting every single nerve that I tested. Although I had considered this as a possibility, I hadn't really expected this finding. I took the results back to my consultant, and we examined Jamie together again. Now it all made sense. 
I realized that although it had been assumed that Jamie had needed to be ventilated because of the severity of his bronchiolitis, the reality was that he needed to be ventilated because he was becoming progressively weak. He had indeed had bronchiolitis, but without the nerve damage, he probably would never have needed to go on a ventilator. During the time that he was being ventilated, the neuropathy had progressed, such that when medication was stopped, Jamie was completely paralysed as a result of the neuropathy. In episode 4, we talked about acute inflammatory neuropathies, and I explained to you about the Guillain-Barré syndrome. The electrical findings in this case suggested that the nerve injury was not simply affecting the lining of the nerves, or demyelination, but was affecting the nerve fibres themselves, an axonal neuropathy. The picture pointed to this being an acute inflammatory axonal neuropathy, and, although the neuropathy was exceptionally severe, this meant that there was a reasonable prospect of at least a partial recovery, and some prospect of a good recovery. I spoke to Jamie's parents and explained this to them. I told them that since this was an axonal neuropathy, recovery would be likely to be extremely slow and could be incomplete. We agreed that it was in his interest to continue to ventilate him, and to make that easier for him, a tracheostomy was formed. This is an operation to make a hole directly into the windpipe through which a small tube is placed and connected to the ventilator. I treated Jamie with intravenous immunoglobulins. Very slowly he started to recover. The first thing we saw was a return of movement of his eyes and the recovery of his pupil reactions. We then began to see some movement of his face and very gradually over many weeks he began to develop movement in his arms and legs. Jamie remained on a ventilator for nearly three months, but eventually he could breathe for himself and he was allowed to go to the ward. Throughout, he received intensive support from the physiotherapists and his strength steadily improved. Six months after his initial admission, Jamie was fit to go home. He was still weak, but he was able to move his arms and legs against gravity and was developing control of his head. I followed him up in the outpatient clinic. By a year after his admission, Jamie was able to support himself on his legs and could sit unsupported. By 18 months after his initial illness, Jamie was still slightly weak but was able to do almost everything that other children his age could do. He became tired more quickly and his muscles were not as well developed as other children of his age, but he was able to play, to join in with other children and to lead a completely normal life. I continued to see Jamie until I left Glasgow. Other than his very mild muscle weakness, he was a healthy little boy who was indistinguishable from any other child when playing or running around in the playground. The only difference was that he would get tired a little bit quicker than everyone else, and, to Jamie's extreme annoyance, he always came last in running races. The concept of brain death is something that troubles a lot of people. Prior to the availability of mechanical ventilation, this was not a specific diagnosis. Death was recognised when spontaneous breathing and heartbeat ceased. However, once mechanical ventilation could sustain biological functions, even in the face of global irreversible brain injury, the concept of brain death became recognised. The validity of brain death, meaning the same as death, when breathing and heartbeat has ceased, has been the subject of considerable medical, ethical and philosophical discussion since that time. 
1968, the ad hoc committee of the Harvard Medical School defined brain death as being equivalent to death and defined the necessary criteria to make the diagnosis. The committee effectively defined the elements that would indicate a permanently non-functioning brain as being complete unconsciousness, as recognized by an inability to respond to external stimuli and complete unresponsiveness, absent spontaneous movement and breathing, and absence of brainstem reflexes. Before making these assessments, there needed to be exclusion of potential confounding factors, such as extremely low body temperature, hypothermia, drugs, reversible metabolic derangement, among others. In 1968, the criteria were put forward irrespective of age, but over time a recognition of the special nature of children in respect of neurological maturation has led to definition of more specific criteria for children, the first of these being advanced in 1987 by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Around the world, there are slight differences in the specific criteria required to make a diagnosis of brain death in childhood. And in the UK, the term death by neurological criteria is utilised. The diagnosis is primarily clinical, but can only be made where there is an identifiable and irreversible cause of coma. The child must show a complete loss of consciousness, vocalisation and volitional motor activity. Clinical evidence of coma is confirmed by a complete absence of response to painful stimuli, both in limbs and centrally in the trunk and head. Careful clinical assessment of key brainstem reflexes involving all the nerves that arise from the brainstem is undertaken, and there must be no evidence of any response. Importantly, the examination must be undertaken by two senior doctors and must be repeated twice to confirm that the same lack of response occurs. These assessments should not be made until an adequate period of time from the brain damaging insult has occurred, and that's usually 24 hours or more, and they cannot be made unless the child is stable in terms of oxygenation, circulation, metabolic function, and is free from drugs. It is immediately obvious why Jamie did not meet the criteria for brain death. Although he clearly met the examination criteria, the preconditions for making the assessment were never met. Nevertheless, until the formal diagnosis of a severe axonal neuropathy was made, the assumption was that all of the neurological abnormality identified must have been due to brain injury. I find it reassuring that we did not, and do not, act on assumption. When considering whether a child has an irreversible neurological disorder, it is essential to have unequivocal confirmatory evidence. When teaching young doctors, I often return to Jamie as an example of this fact. Like it or not, as doctors, we do hold the life of another person in our hands, and we cannot afford to make mistakes at any time, most significantly when making decisions about termination or withdrawal of care. I also take comfort from the fact that excellent neurological recovery can take place, even over a very long period of time. This is something that I have seen over and over again in my career. As neurologists, we are sometimes accused of temporizing unnecessarily. In my view, recognizing that the nervous system, whether brain, spine, nerves or muscles, can recover from significant insults even after a prolonged period of time is essential. Of course, sadly, sometimes there is clear evidence that recovery cannot and will not occur, and then there is no place for unnecessary delay. 
In that situation, the most important thing is to give families the time they need to say goodbye. Some of you may be wondering about bronchiolitis. This is inflammation which affects the very small air passages in the lungs. These are known as bronchioles. These are the small branching airways which terminate in the air sacs or alveoli in the lungs. This inflammation is usually caused by a virus, the commonest of which is called the respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Other respiratory viruses can also cause bronchiolitis. Typically, bronchiolitis occurs in winter months and is usually very frequent between November and February in the UK. The frequency of infections varies somewhat from year to year, but RSV bronchiolitis is a major cause of hospital admission for babies and young infants every year. Babies with bronchiolitis usually present with symptoms such as fever, runny nose, cough and wheeze. Some babies may develop more severe breathing difficulties with rapid breathing, grunting, flaring of the nostrils and may also have difficulties with feeding. In most babies the treatment is simply supportive at home, but some babies will require hospital admission for nasogastric feeds or provision of intravenous fluids and additional oxygen. Very occasionally, breathing difficulties become so severe that mechanical ventilation is required. Most babies get better within a few days, although some may have recurrent problems with wheeziness over a more prolonged period. It is easy to think after we talk about a baby like Jamie that everything that comes to a neurologist is very serious and that the conversations that we are having with families are inevitably deep and difficult. Certainly, one of the disadvantages of being in a subspecialty like neurology is that you see fewer of the straightforward problems and more of the more complex problems. However, some problems which are relatively straightforward may, at first view, appear to be complex, and it's always a pleasure to be able to reassure a child and their family that the neurological symptoms with which they present do not indicate a serious underlying brain problem. Dougie was eight when he first came to see me. He'd been referred by his general practitioner, and he came with both his mum and his dad, who were obviously very worried about him. They told me that in the last six weeks, Dougie had had two fits in the early morning. Both had been very similar and had occurred at around 6.30am. Dougie's parents told me that they heard him calling for them. When they went into his room, Dougie's face was twisted to the side. He was profusely drooling saliva. He was unable to speak and he had twitching of one side of his face. On the first occasion, they were so terrified that they were unable to make an assessment of how long it had lasted. But when it happened the second time, they took note and documented that the fit went on for about 90 seconds. At the end of the episode, Dougie's face remained droopy for about half a minute and his speech was slurred. But after that, his face recovered, his speech returned to normal and he was just a bit tired. Dougie's parents were terrified that either he was having a stroke or he had a brain tumour. Dougie himself told me that on both occasions he felt something strange in his face and it was at this point that he called out to his parents. He told me that he could then feel his face twitching and he was unable to speak, although he was able to hear and understand what his parents were saying to him and could see that they were frightened. 
From the story, I was in no doubt that the events Dougie had experienced were both epileptic seizures, and I was fairly confident that I knew what kind of epilepsy this was. I arranged for Dougie to have an EEG, and this showed the characteristic abnormality seen in a form of epilepsy that we used to call benign relandic epilepsy, but now call benign childhood epilepsy with centrotemporal spikes. Although the correct terminology for the kind of epilepsy that Dougie had is benign childhood epilepsy with centrotemporal spikes, it is obviously much easier to say benign relandic epilepsy, and I will stick with that for the moment. Benign relandic epilepsy is a fairly common childhood epilepsy, occurring in up to 10-15% to of all cases of epilepsy in childhood. Typically it occurs in children between the ages of 6 and 8 years, and it is slightly more common in boys. The epilepsy is characterised by what are called focal seizures, which typically affect the face and lead to unilateral twitching of the face with drooling and speech arrest. The EEG shows a very characteristic pattern with a normal background with spikes, which are very brief bursts of electrical activity lasting around 0.1 of a second, and, coupled with a typical story, make the diagnosis. The diagnosis is very important for a number of reasons. Firstly, this form of epilepsy is not associated with structural brain abnormality, and there is no need to undertake brain imaging. Secondly, the epilepsy is firmly age-related and always goes away in childhood. This form of epilepsy is not seen in adults. Thirdly, the majority of children have very few seizures. About one-fifth will only have one seizure. The majority have less than five seizures, and only about a fifth will have more than ten seizures in total. This means that one can give some very clear information to the child and the family of that child about the future once the diagnosis has been made. After the EEG, I met with Dougie and his parents. I explained the diagnosis and told them that we would not need to do any further tests on Dougie. I explained that his brain was normal in every respect, other than the tendency to have these seizures. I was able to confidently reassure them that Dougie did not have a stroke or brain tumour. I also explained to Dougie that he would inevitably outgrow the epilepsy. I advised that since the majority of children would have very few seizures, and since there was an excellent chance that Dougie would not have any further seizures now, I did not feel that treatment with regular anti-epileptic medication was necessary. Dougie's parents were not keen for him to be taking unnecessary medication, and Dougie himself did not feel that the seizures were so unpleasant that he would want to take medication every day. We agreed that this was a decision that could be reviewed should Dougie have further seizures, and after giving the family time to discuss and consider the advice, they went home without treatment. In fact, Dougie never had a further seizure, and the family were delighted with the decision. The term benign in this situation refers to the fact that the epilepsy invariably goes into remission. Interestingly, the epilepsy is not always completely benign in respect of how it affects individual children, and some children with this form of epilepsy will have specific, albeit often subtle, cognitive deficits. It's important, therefore, for families to let schools know about the diagnosis, so that if there is any concern about their child's progress, appropriate help and support can be provided. Nevertheless, at the end of the day, children with this condition do very well indeed, 
This is one of those situations in which very scary symptoms do not signify serious underlying brain problems. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it once again. If you'd like to, you can go to my website, childrensdoctortales.co.uk, and there you can join my mailing list. I'd be happy to send you further information about the podcast, and you can read transcripts of previous episodes. This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please come back for the next episode, where I will be telling more stories of amazing children and their families. Goodbye. Goodbye.